When he told you you're not good enough, when he told you you're not right, when he told you you're not strong enough to put up a good fight, when he told you you're not worthy, when he told you you're not loved, when he told you you're not beautiful, you'll never be enough. Fear, he is a liar. He will take your breath, stop you in your steps. Fear, he is a liar. He will rob your rest, steal your happiness, cast your fear in the fire cause fear he is a liar when he told you your trouble you'll forever be alone when he told you should run away, you'll never find a home. When he told you you were dirty, then you should be ashamed. When he told you you could be the one, the grace could never change. Oh, fear, he is a liar. He will take your breath.
everybody. Welcome back to church. Woo! Yeah, it's good, to, it's good to see you all. I'm very sad that I couldn't be out there shaking your hands. Instead, I'll just sing at you and spread my germs that way. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, so church is going to be a little bit different. Uh, as you can see, we're set up in a little bit of a different way, and that's, uh, that's we want to keep each other safe. We're going to try to maintain space. Uh, just like a reminder when we're leaving today that the people on the west side of the room, you can try to sneak out first, and then we'll kind of file our way out so that we're not having to crawl over each other. And I, I heard a different pastor talking about this on a podcast recently, but I thought it was really interesting that as we're in this different season of, of church, there's, there's things that make us feel sad. You know, I'm not going to ask you to sing with us because we don't want to be just spreading our air so much. And that's, that feels a little bit sad, but uh, in the book of Ezra, this is an Old Testament book, and it's about when the Israelites got out of Babylon where they'd been held in captivity, and a few of them got to come back and start to rebuild the temple. And when they were doing that, and they're laying the foundation of the new temple, it says in, in this is in chapter 3 in Ezra, it says that there was some, some old priests and older people who remembered the the temple that had been burned down by the Babylonians, the one that had been destroyed. And they were mourning and crying over the loss, over seeing this new thing being built up, and they were remembering what it what had been. But there was other people who got to who were seeing the temple for the first time. They they had been born in captivity. They didn't know the temple. And so they were rejoicing and going, This is the place where we worship our God. And there was just this mix of emotions. And I think we're kind of in a season like that where for some of us we, are, we do more, and church feels a little bit different these days. We're spread out. We can't shake hands. You know, all that kind of stuff is different. But we're also on the precipice of something new happening in the way that church is happening. And so we should also be rejoicing and going, God is doing new things through this. And through times like these, God sheds away the old things that are unnecessary, and he helps us build new things that are helpful for the growth of the church, for the growth of our walk with him. So as we are beginning and entering into worship today, I'm not going to invite you to stand and sing, but I am going to invite you, as we've been doing the past few weeks, to take a minute, close your eyes. Maybe you want to put your palms up in, like a, in a receiving kind of position, and we're going to just quiet ourselves for a little bit before we enter into worship because we're preparing to be near, to be near God. Even he's, he's here with us, but we have to prepare ourselves to be with him. So let's just take a minute, and we'll start worship shortly. Oh, good morning. Wow, that's kind of weak. We got like claps when Zach said it. Man. <laughs> no, it's good to be together again. Thank you. Morning. <laughs> yeah, Paul, thanks. Let's uh, join together in prayer this morning. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are a loving and gracious God, that you give us your unmerited favor and love. That means, God, we could do nothing to earn your smile. We can do nothing to earn the love that you show to us, the, the very breath you give to us, that, that sustaining power that give to, you give to us each day. God, we couldn't make that happen. You give it to us. You, you are with us because you care for us. And it's because of Jesus and what he's done in rescuing us and bringing us back to, into relationship with you, God, that we can, we can take joy and delight in that. 
God, that you have rescued us from our sin, from our brokenness, from our mistakes, from our mishaps, and yes, even the things we have done on purpose. God, we praise you for not loving us conditionally, but loving us as we are and refusing to leave us this way, for promising us life, blessing us with it today, and giving us the hope for it eternally. God, we think about that prayer this morning as we think about the Baker family. We continue to pray for Bob and Mary Ann and for just Keith and Debbie, Lord, in the loss of Kim a couple weeks back. God, how much is hope needed when we face death? We can't do anything. We, Lord, if it's left up to us, and if there's no hope, we are left lost. But in your goodness, you have rescued Kim from even death itself. That's the good news. It's not that she had to go through death. No, that, that in itself, we weep and we mourn over with the bakers. And we weep and mourn with every family that has experienced loss recently. Not only in this Hardaway community, community but in our, our Holland community, in Michigan, in the United States, and in North America, and in this world. God, loss, death wasn't the way it was supposed to be. And yet, because of Jesus being raised from the dead, because of his gift of life to us, we have hope that we will also live. So God, may that hope continue to strengthen us. May it continue to bring us joy. And Lord, we thank you for the joy of new life as we think about the pet family and as they welcome little Josie joy, God, and that we can see new life in this life. Oh, how we need to see those moments of just complete and utter bliss, uh, Lord. And, and maybe those moments don't last long because then we get to sleepless nights. <laughs> but God, to see the gift of new life uh, and the joy that Josie will bring to their family, the, what new life brings to each of us, Lord, we, we praise you and we honor you. God, we honor you in, as well, the ways we serve. And in this week, it's while summer serve isn't going to be the way it's been over the years, it still is going to take place. And, and it's still going to involve um, many of the families of this particular community. While it won't necessarily touch into the multitudes of families from other communities and places, it does touch ours. And Lord, I pray for our kids our middle schoolers, our high schoolers, our college-age students who, who are going to be volunteering as well, for, for the adults who will be making food and cleaning tables, for those who will be helping guide our, our students and working alongside of them. Lord, I pray that, that the love that you have given to each of us would just shine through them to those that, that they serve this week. God, that you would transform their hearts uh, as they give because oftentimes, Lord, it is better to give than simply receive. So, Lord, continue to work in their lives and transform their hearts. Lord, we pray uh, to this morning, not only for Hardawike, but for the many communities of faith uh, spread, spread across the Holland 
community, the Zealand community, and, and, and again, the rest of this world as we navigate how to worship you, whether it's uh, through in-person, whether it's via technology. God, I pray that your spirit that joins us all together would give us all a sense of a, of a unity. God, that we're, we're more than just ourselves. That we can worship in new and creative ways. That we can worship in ways that are familiar to us. Lord, that you would be honored in what we say and what we do. And what happens in our hearts. And now, Lord, as, as Josh brings the word to us this morning, God, we want to welcome him into this space, into this time, to our community here as a brother in Christ. That's the privilege we have, Lord. Anyone who takes on the name of Jesus, we can simply today call them family. So thanks for a member of our family that very few of us know, but uh, has the opportunity to be here with us today. I pray, God, that your word would just saturate everything that he says and who he is this morning uh, with us. Lord, that we would have ready hearts and minds. To, to take on what, Lord, he has to share with us, because it's not him speaking, Lord. It's you. So may we treat this, Lord, as a holy moment, as a moment where there is potential for a life change that we can't even imagine. So God, work through your Holy Spirit, through Josh, through each of us, as we receive your word this morning. God, we praise you, we honor you for the love that you've given to us in the name of Jesus all God's children said, amen. I want to welcome Josh this morning with us. He's going to be sharing God's word. Morning, Josh. Morning. Oh, I'm on. Okay, that's great. I can remove this now as well. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. Fantastic. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. It's really, it's really good to see you. Um, I was just kind of trying to catch up a little bit and check in with you, and I just saw the backs of a, a very few heads last week as I'm sure everyone's trying to navigate just the total strangeness of this season. I mean, it's been, it's cliche now to say it's unprecedented, but it is unprecedented. So it's just, you're in territory that you've never been in, and this is what happens. But um, I heard lots about you guys, and uh, I'm really glad to be joining you in worship and getting to bring the word to you, and yeah, I mean, it's an exciting opportunity for me. So, um, yeah, I just have a little bit of history. Um, Darwin um, was my professor back in the day when I was in Montreat, and uh, Bill, Linder, and I go back quite a few years, too, also in ministry, and then getting to know some of these guys uh, through some of the dialogue here, and you guys are blessed with a wonderful staff and, and pastors, and um, yeah, so I was happy to uh, receive the invite. And come on up. Um, understand that you guys have been in a series in the Psalms in the summer, right? Summer series in the Psalms. And uh, at this point, you're up to the 56th, right? So if you want to turn in your scriptures, you can do that. Although you guys might have it on the screen too. Is that right? You don't. So, okay. So on your devices or your Bibles, however you want to do that. If you want to turn to the 56th Psalm, you can do that. And I understand that for the sake of like uh, viewers at home, so if you're viewing at home, we're really glad that you're tuning in too, that we're trying to keep these to a somewhat of a, uh, I don't know, a timely, efficient sort of watch, because you probably learned in being home watching services from the couch, it's a very different experience, and your, your kids are crawling over the back of the couch by 10 minutes in, and you're just like, oh, when, how are we going to do this? So uh, let's just jump right into the 56th Psalm. Sound good? All right, so hear the word of the Lord. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me 
All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape. In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered me and my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. So I don't know how you're finding um, the Psalms, but I find the Psalms really interesting and at the same time pretty difficult um, to preach, really, because they're a hodgepodge. They're unlike really anything else in the Scriptures. They're, they're sort of a collection of uh, a, a sort of a, a blunder mix, really, of songs, of poetry, of praise, of prayer, of confession. Sometimes they're filled with very uncomfortable rants and railings, if you ever notice as you read them, like things that they say uh, and speak to God that you almost feel like, I'm not sure you should be saying that. Um, and, and it seems a little bit um, out of line. And uh, many of them seem to be highly personal, almost as if when you read them, you feel like you're opening up someone's prayer journal and like maybe you shouldn't be looking at what you're uh, reading and the desire to maybe to, to close them. Uh, and a lot of these we also just get no context, so we have no idea what's going on, what the background is. So literally, it is like reading somebody else's mail or walking into the middle of a movie, and you just have no idea what's going on. Thankfully, in this one, there's actually a little bit of background, which becomes pretty helpful. Um, if, uh, if you're more like me, uh, and maybe you're not, and that's great if you're, if you're not, um, you come to the Psalms, though, and you kind of wonder at the end of them, what's what exactly is in this for me? What, what, did, what was God hoping to communicate with me as you finished your cup of coffee, as you headed out the door, as you got the kids to school, or, or, or you went to work and, and you're cramming in this, um, this morning devotional? Oftentimes, they don't appear to be quick, easy, ready, key turn, you know, lessons uh, or, or doctrines. Um, and that's because they're not supposed to be part of the Psalms. This isn't the context for those. And I, and I know that um, your pastors have, have probably said this already, I think, through the series, so pardon the redundancy, but this is intentional on God's part. The nature of the Psalms is not so much to give us doctrine and theology, necessarily, necessarily straightforward lessons, um, at least not in the way that we tend to think of doctrine and, and theology. Um, what he's doing in the Psalms is letting us in on these often very highly personal dialogues as a means by which then he might enter into highly personal dialogue with us. So these, these psalms are a tool, they're a means by which God enters in 
almost a little bit inconspicuously, almost a little bit unexpectedly into our hearts. He sort of gains access through the back door into the deeper parts of us, usually the deeper parts that we don't want to necessarily let him go to. He comes in a little bit unannounced. And that's partly what Paul meant. Like if you remember some of the things that Paul had said um, about Scripture, he describes the word as living and active, right? Do you remember that? Um, and, and Scripture especially has the, the Psalms, especially the ability in the Spirit's hands to sort of pry open the places where we've closed off and where God gets to really personally speak and dialogue with us. And in doing so, then really do the work of redemption, right? So sometimes we're tempted to often think of salvation and redemption as just being sort of a transactional thing, that we've, we've made a confession or we've said yes, and so at the end of all things, there is life. But the way that the Psalms understand life is that salvation is not a transaction per se, but it is an act of transformation by which God now gains access to a vulnerable heart wherein he works us over to mold us more and more into the image of his son and give us his life. Okay, so here's where we want to go today. Two things, two words that I often like to just sort of hang a sermon on a couple of pegs that you can then re-enter through, you know, through those pegs back into the sermon through the week that you'll remember them. And so let's go with two R's today. I'm an English major and I love alliteration and I find they're a pretty good, helpful way to remember things. Um, let's go with, um, we'll go with the revealing and the um, resolve, okay? So can you guys say those back to me, the two of those? Okay, great. So around the lunch table, you'll be able to go, okay, we can, we can discuss this sermon or a dinner or even during the week or um, on your way into um, to work in uh, the morning. So we've got context here in this psalm, which is really, really helpful, right? This is not a journal entry that comes out of nowhere. Um, the catalyst for it is a specific episode in the life of David. Actually, it's, it's sort of like the pinnacle of a series of episodes in the life of David, going all the way back to the Old Testament. Um, David being the, uh, the second king, right, um, of Israel. And the thing about David becoming the second king of Israel is that he was tagged to be the second king. He was named the successor to Saul, who was the first king. And I don't know if you're, you know, like fans of British royal drama or um, Game of Thrones or all that stuff that's out there. You can probably catch on, on Netflix or if you just read the, uh, the, the tabloids in the stands as you go by. Or maybe you're a history buff, but you would know this if you're familiar with any of those, that it is not a good thing for a standing king to have a successor named and that guy's not part of his family. That usually means this is going to go badly and there will be blood. Um, Saul is not happy in the least with having seen um, and been bested by a, uh, a younger man uh, who is going to uh, now become king. And once this younger man, David, we know, like we know David for anything, what we really probably know about David is, is that he slew what or whom? Goliath. That's how we know him. By the way, if you have not read Malcolm Gladwell's book on David and Goliath, highly recommend it. It's great insight into that whole metaphor. Um, really cool stuff. But that act sort of 
sends a bit of uh, wild enthusiasm into the countryside of the people um, who begin to uh, see David as their emerging hope. Saul is not the king they were hoping for. David is. And the press is really good. And with that fame story, songs are being sung about him. And that's only adding to the the, the fire, the fuel of Saul, okay? And it just pushes him over the edge, and it sends him out in pursuit of David. Do you want to read about that later? It's a pretty interesting story to read um, back in 1 Samuel, kind of 18, chapter 18, and following for a few chapters. Here's the short of it. At first, what happens is he flees to the prophet Samuel. And I had a map. I'm not sure if you guys got the map. Did we get the map? Brilliant. So you can kind of just kind of get an idea for... Um, what's sort of happening here. Just a a little bit of a visual. At first he flees to the prophet Samuel from Saul, a little place called Ramah. And from there he seeks shelter after learning that Saul's in hot pursuit. He can't stay there with um, one of the priests at a place called Nob. Um, But he cannot stay long for there. And then running out of places to hide in his own territory, um, the short of it is, is he ends up in a place called Gath. So can you see Gath over here in this um, western side? I call it the this is west side, right? Um, okay, you might notice in Gath there's a big word written across the top of that. Do you guys see what that is? Yeah. Did anyone notice that that could be problematic? Just the Philistines. So um, David, in the, in the last place that he leaves, is handed a giant sword, which he is to carry on his person for self-defense. And that sword is the sword that belongs to a guy he killed not long ago called Goliath, who is of the Philistines. In fact, Gath is his hometown. So, in other words, this is the last place he should be going at a time like this. Um, And uh, a king named Achish uh, reigns there. Uh, so this is one of the moments, like I don't know how you guys do like when you read books or when you read stories or when you watch movies at home. Um, and I think probably everyone's probably TV'd out, but what else are you doing when you're quarantined? Um, but if you're like me, and I swore I'd never become this way because my mom always did and now I do it, I talk to the TV. Do you guys do that? Like you're always just like, who's that guy? Well, what's he doing there? And my mom used to do it all the time, like, Mom, I'm watching the same show as you are. I have no idea who these people are. Um, we're, we're all just following along. But I love to do that. But this is one of the parts in the story where as David shows up and it says that he shows up in Gath, we're going, what are you doing there? I mean, it's a time to talk back to um, the, the story. And we're not out of line for doing it um, because even the men who belong to Achish, they're puzzled and they're asking the same thing. They're like, aren't you the David who people are singing? Aren't you the David of the headlines that people are singing songs about and dancing jigs to? And then something, when, when David hears them say this, something clicks in him. And whoever's writing 1 Samuel says that he took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Afraid enough to have not only caused him to feign insanity, which he then decides to do, but to have prompted a psalm in reflection on it, right? Remember, this is where this started with the reading of a psalm. So, a couple questions come to mind. They should. This is like the psalm. This is the story begging us to enter in. And and the first one um, is the one that we kind of asked aloud. What on earth is David doing there in the first place? And the second one is kind of related to it. What exactly did he become afraid of 
What is the fear that prompts from him this psalm, right? And we're not told the answer to either of these questions. And this is kind of the beauty of some of the, of the literature like the psalms. They're inviting us to actually imagine, to conjecture, um, to begin to do some, some work. And so I'm just going to give you my best guesses. There's lots of great speculations out there in the commentaries, and I'm going to give you the one that, that I think sort of makes the most sense of the situation and to me. Um, David is at the end of his rope. He's got nowhere left uh, to run. He is desperate. And if you know anything about experience with being desperate, then when we are desperate, we tend to cop to desperate measures. Um, probably figures. This is probably what's going on in his mind at this point. That the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You ever heard that, that saying before? It, it's, pretty, it's, it's pretty much the, um, it, it's how there are still somehow like 17 seasons of Survivor. Because that is the running theme of every single Survivor season and every mob story you've ever seen. And pretty much every, um, the, the key component, every national security uh, plan for every government. This is how we operate. We find out who is enemies with our enemies and we make friends of them. This is like a military strategy that he is co-opting with his sword hanging from his side. But then at the last moment, right, um, it dawns on him. He comes to realize that the king's pointing it out to him that maybe this is an insane plan. That what on earth is he doing here at this place? Um, and it made him afraid. Made him afraid of Achish. But I, but I think there's also a deeper fear here at work than the fear of Achish. Something that really prompted, and David had lots of episodes where he was afraid. But something that prompted a psalm that would come later. Um, and this is the thing that I really think frightened David. Not just so much what King Achish might do to him, but David himself. He was afraid at what he had done to himself. Namely, that he feared the wrong thing. And that he lost himself. One minute, sort of riding high on the wings of hubris believing that he could play the part of a military mighty figure and grab a seat at the table of power. And then the next minute, diminished and brought into this humiliating posture and having to feign insanity. And the simplest way to put what he felt in that moment was that he had lost his very soul. That in these attempts to preserve his own life, he had actually lost it. That he took God out of the equation and began to take matters into his own hands. And that he grabbed what we would say the, the proverbial um, bull by the horns and to make a way for himself in a way that, that caused him to bow not before God but before men. And if we're honest, we, we have plenty of moments of, like these in our lives. Maybe, maybe not as dramatic, maybe not as, um, as, as 
as visible as the one in which David is going through. But the stuff that David gives voice to in, in this prayer of his, these, these are the things that happen to us, right? Man tramples on us. We feel attacked and we feel oppressed. Enemies besiege. They commit crimes and slander. All the stuff of life in a fallen world, we, we see it everywhere. It happens to us. None of us really goes through life unscathed by it. And sometimes they get the better of us. And we feel be beaten down. And in our weakness, we often cave and we begin to play the game. Only as we find, as we always do, what happens? That in the midst of, of caving to the game, playing its, its, its power struggles, then instead of actually gaining our life, we feel we've lost a little bit of it. That the very things that we loathe and that we lament, we end up only actually ourselves perpetrating. And so when we're caused to reflect on that, if we have time to pause and reflect on that and take stock of it, uh, a feeling of helplessness begins to settle in. Like this feeling of being caught in a vicious cycle from um, which there is no escape. But then hear the resolve. And I love this. this. This sudden awareness seems to dawn on David. And this is, this is the psalm. There is a God. A God, he says, who has kept count of his tossings. I'm not sure what translations you guys are reading. That's from the ESV. But they make a little note down there in the bottom of it too, and, and it says that this word in the Hebrew could also be understood to mean wanderings. And by wanderings would be this idea that he has wandered, deviated from faith and trust in God, in his way. And I like that. I think that's, that's meant to be part of our translations. Because what it means is, is that God is not unaware of our frailty. Our unfaithfulness does not surprise him. Our weakness and our inability to be true from the heart to him is not something that causes him to, to panic, to move away from us, or surprise him. And of course, we know that, I think in theory, this is a God who does not abandon us in our faithfulness and that he is gracious. And of course, we know that because we, we live on the other side of the cross. We can preach that pretty, pretty clearly. We know the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that in his death we die with our sin, that with his rising we are raised, right, with his pleasing life. I think this is one of the most important things to remember. With his pleasing life, we have been made fully pleasing to God as if the life we have lived is the life that Jesus has lived. There's a great aphorism for this if you're ever looking for, especially as you're thinking about it or preaching the gospel to yourself or to your friends, which is always good to do, and your kids. Um, Tim Keller, Gospel in a Nutshell, 
that he lived the life we could not live, that he died the death we should have died, that he raised us up with him, that we might walk in newness of life. And he's not surprised when we don't. And with that in mind, with just seeing the faint outline of this kind of a God as the God who's pledged himself to David, David will go on then to preach this gospel to himself. I mean, he opens graciousness. Be gracious to me, O God, because I know you are. In God I trust. That's what he says. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? I must perform my vows to you, for you have delivered my soul from death and kept my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. And of course, when he talks about God as preserving his life from him, he's no longer just talking about the physical sense. He's no longer talking just about how God had spared him from a couple of scrapes, but saying that in the midst of those scrapes, he has now come to see that God is the God who rescues his soul from the inside out, regardless of what this life and what this world do to you. And he makes a vow to remember it. He makes a vow to perform his vows to God. And we got to be a little bit careful here because this is where I think sometimes we can go kind of awry. So, vow is, is a, a little bit of a confusing concept. And two things that are not happening here that sometimes I think we sometimes think might be happening here. And they're both dangerous. The first is this. Sometimes we think that by a vow we might be doing or entering into some kind of a quid pro quo. Right? And I scratch your back and you will scratch mine. I will give you X and you will give me Y. A lot of popular concepts of Christianity even and, and uh, places that get loads of attention offer something so close to this that it is absolutely frightening. This notion that if you could be good enough for God and if you could do enough acts of service for God, that in exchange he would give you the good life. Nothing, of course, could be further from the truth. One, God does not bargain. Two, death comes for us all. Three, as Jesus says, in this life you will have what? Trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world, and the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And he will see us through the world, and he will see us through the death that it brings us, and the death that it threatens us with, and bring us out the other side. And not only will he do these things, but in a real sense, he already has. Right? So that Paul can say, we have already been raised up with Jesus. So that the worst that this world can do is what we already know is coming. Is expedite the process on our arrival to see the Lord. Second way, though, I think we go awry. And this maybe is, I don't know, maybe more poignant in light of, light of vows. Is to somehow think of this vow as being some kind of, like a boast like a way of sort of standing before God, even if you know there's nothing that is um, on the line for it, even if it's not quid pro quo, but saying, I'm the man. I am faithful to you. I will make good 
on the forgiveness and the grace that you have given me. And I will live a life that does not know the trouble and the temptation and the dilemma and the wavering that David has known and experienced of wanting to cop to the world in fear of it. So let me say this. The, the term for that is what we would call sort of the victorious Christian life. And it is a myth. It, it just cannot be done. It lays on us a burden that God himself does not lay on us. Um, not to discourage you, but Daniel never reaches a point in his life where he licks this particular fear. He never comes out to a point where he goes, not dealing with that anymore. It no longer holds influence or sway over me. It's one of the disappointing things as you read through the whole life of David, what you keep finding is, is he is a disappointment at just about every turn. He makes a shipwreck of his kingly reign. He is a horrible father. He will wrestle with everyone who poses a challenge to him and will cop to the world's ways and do repentance over and over and over again. Because here is the truth about our sin. It runs deep. They're so deeply ingrained and married to our being. And this is the part that I think that we just don't take sin seriously enough. Uh, we're so prone to reduce sin to a, a checklist that can be marked off on the fridge or, or even in our prayer journals. And things that we can then say, done, finished, simple behaviors. And then that repentance becomes really the ceasing from doing those simple, achievable things. But here's really, I want to offer you a better, hopefully richer definition of sin. Sin is the unique way of your being. It is the unique way that your fears, whatever they may be, they're not going to be David's. They're going to be unique. It is the unique way that these drive us and that they keep us fundamentally opposed to constantly moving away from, unwilling and afraid of submitting and laying our life bare and our hearts exposed and vulnerable, no chest-thumping, no pretense, no pretending that we have it together and surrendering ourselves before the living God and say, have me as you will. Repentance then becomes the moving back towards with all of our being in willing submission and surrender to the God who heals as we avail our hearts to him. With this conviction, this understanding that our best selves, our real selves, are out there really waiting for us in him. And the more that we hold on to our false selves and try to handle our fears apart from him, the more they will actually own us. Will this be hard? Yeah. 
harder than anything, actually, we can will or muster or checklist or regimen or discipline. And I've been around long enough to know that you, you never get to a place, not in this lifetime, where you can say, I have arrived. Licked that. The truth is, is our sins will not be licked. Our being will not be completely made over. Our soul will not be fully alive as it will be alive until we see him face to face as he is. And in the presence of his worship, we are changed. But God never promises the eradication, right, of our sins, only to see us through them, to cause us to walk in the light of life, even if that light of life is shadowed in part by the valley of sin and death. But with this reminder, this is the one David gives voice to in his Psalms, that in him we can trust, that if he is for us, then there really is nothing that can stand against us, that he is faithful, and that he will surely do it. Amen? All right, let me um, pray for us, and then I think the band's going to come up and help lead us in worship. Father, I'm grateful for the very raw and unedited words that Davis gives us and that he allows us into the struggle of his heart. This dilemma to be bowing down before the world and caving to it and its ways and bowing between or before you and before your ways. And Lord God, we confess those are our temptations and our dilemmas as well. And so we thank you for the good news that David is able to arrive at, to be able to see that you are good, that you are faithful, that of your own initiative, by your own power in your Son, and through the Holy Spirit, our life has been lived already for us in Jesus. Our death has already been performed with him and our sins buried deep with him and newness of life has come Lord God help us to walk in it to embrace it to lay our hearts before you and let you do what only you can do we ask these things in Jesus Amen Still in your
Ask you guys to stand. All right. Let me announce over you God's blessing. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Pleasure being with you guys this morning. Go in the in the faith and the goodness and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please remember to exit through the left, or the west first, letting people in front of you go before you. And if, as you wait, there's announcements on the screen.